So yeah, I think it's safe to say that we can start our conversation. So I'm just going to greet, I just want to greet everyone who has joined us in this afternoon. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, warm welcome to you. Um, I know in these times, things are very complicated, you know, schedules and just life outside of like our computer screens is also a bit busy. So thank you for giving us, um, you know, your time and also our panel. Thank you for giving us your time to join us in this particular conversation. And in this month of heritage, so Digify Africa has made it a point to sort of celebrate our different cultures by providing information and, and also just giving us content that is directly interested in, in celebrating our different heritage and our different culture. Because obviously heritage plays a very big role in our society. Um, is it also, it is the foundation of our value systems and our traditions. So we thought, why not have a conversation bringing together different creatives and different artists to talk about how you know heritage has played a role within their craft and how does that translate into the digital age so today if you just joined us i will be joined by brilliant women who i believe have played a very big role in celebrating our history cultures and traditions through their work um, i'll be in conversation with designer Gulim langeni berg um, filmmaker Nadine Klute, I also mentioned that she just won the Audience Choice Award at the Durban International Film Festival. Um, singer and songwriter Zoe Madicha, who was also quite busy over the past weekend, and also collaborative spoken word um, duo Yamoria. Welcome to the panel and welcome to you at home again. And thank you for your time. Now, Lebo Mashile in her 2016 um, TED talk called Memory Matters, she talks, she talks about how South Africa struggles from a memory crisis and that our history doesn't necessarily reflect our true lived experiences. So she goes on to say that, you know, as we move into the digital age, she wishes that those in power and those who do have access sort of create archives and digital libraries that will reflect our lived experiences and that we'll be able to have access to, 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 you know, to our past, to our, and also to have access to some of the things that have been happening you know, recently and just have those spaces for everyone so that they can also learn from you know, the different uh, um, you know, influences that have, that have also come from our different heritage, our different cultures and our different traditions. So today's conversation is gonna try and unpack that. I'm gonna start with you Nguli. Um, I just wanna find out from you, how, has, how do you think digital um, media has influenced or impacted the arts industry and how has it allowed for new forms of expression? Hi, thanks everyone and hello to everyone who's joining. Um, I mean I can um, mostly right now speak for how or what it has done for my brand uh, because when I started uh, this uh, specific project, which is the handwoven textiles, I was in Peru at the time, and it was my research project on the textiles. And I literally had no plan of registering a business or, you know, doing much about it, but I just started posting it on Instagram. And through that, um, a lot of people saw it, it gained a lot of attention, and then I won the Design Endeavor Prize, and then from there it just became a, a ripple effect. So I would say, you know, and a, a lot of the times for designers like me, you were supposed to, or then the traditional way was to wait for media coverage, for example, to profile your brand or your product. But now you are, everything is in your own hands and you're able to communicate with the audience that you want to communicate with. And you're able to do your own marketing and you're able to, to just like represent your brand in a way or curate your content and your brand in a way that makes sense for you. So I would say in that sense, it has uh, done a lot, especially for young independent creatives and artists to be able to remain independent of other people controlling their stories or, um, you know, basically dictating when and who sees it. Yeah. That's, and that's how I've experienced it. Sure. Um, Nadine, Nguli also talks about independence and just having the space to sort of 
um, market and broadcast your work authentically. Would you say that that, all, that has translated into the filmmaking industry as well in terms of access? Because I know a lot of documentaries about South Africa are very hard to find. Um, I think maybe in the digital age, it might be a bit easier, but then would you say also that um, having that access has allowed for people to access um, you know, stories that have been documented in South Africa and Africa at large? Thanks, Afira. Yeah, I think so, because look, now that we couldn't gather for film festivals how we usually do, all festivals have now gone online. So I think that creates a very interesting audience for our work, because I think festivals attract a particular audience. And now that, you know, the online space, it's way more democratic almost, right? It's way more inclusive. So um yeah, it it's definitely opens up. Because look, if I talk about the Durban Film Festival experience um, in particular, they had capped um, viewers, viewership rather, of your work at 600 streams, right? So, um, and for a short film, our short film address unknown is 24 minutes. I don't know if we were at a traditional festival if we would have gotten 600 people to come and watch a short film over the space of the festival, I don't know. But that is now something that is really unique to the online space, uh -huh. right? Because people are engaging differently. Sure. Zoe, in the music world, I know it has been evolving and I think it keeps on evolving. Um, we, we went from cassettes to CDs to having online, you know, streaming services, would you, would you say that this also has had a great impact in terms of access of our music? I mean, I know a lot of, you know, um, old music, South African old music, doesn't ne wouldn't necessarily have access to it without these digital platforms. So would you say that also, you know, the digital space has given, um, you know, some positive, to, some positive um, element to the music industry as well? Absolutely. Um, I think the idea of the digital world has allowed the global music lovers to be exposed to music, you know, um, and I think in the past it was really about having that cassette, having that vinyl, having that CD, knowing which CD shops to go to. Um, and a lot of times maybe you'd find certain musicians or certain music wouldn't be found in mainstream spaces like your musica, so to speak. So the idea of having music accessible and people's discographies accessible everywhere becomes important in terms of having the global conversation um, and having global interaction with, with, with the creations. And, and speaking of, you know, global culture, then I, I want to ask um, maybe to the Yamoria ladies, how do you think we can change existing their narratives about Africa and at the same time become contributors to global culture? Um, well, you know, there's always been the, the line about the hunter telling the story. And I feel like with this age, it's us telling our own stories and archiving our sure. own stuff for ourselves, by us, for the world, you know? And I yeah. think it's just a very interesting time and it's a beautiful space to be in. And culture is a very evolving thing and we get to capture that with the times, you know? Yeah. And I think we also sit in a situation where as black women, when we go back looking for representation, that is a non-existent thing. Voice is not something we've always had. And here we are with a panel full of women of color able to talk about their own heritage and culture. And that's what the digital age has allowed us to do. So I'm really excited about this new space that we're in. Having a voice and allowing to represent yourself the way you want to represent yourself, that's what I'm there for. Definitely. We're going to talk about the gender element in, in tradition and the digital age just in a minute. But Zoe, Yamora also, the Yamora ladies also touched on something about culture and evolving. I want to ask you because you've done a brilliant job in sort of merging modernity and culture. And I, I usually don't like putting the two together because I just think culture should just be culture. Do you know what I mean? I, I think mm -hmm. it's just culture. There shouldn't be like a modern hyphen culture type of, um, you know, labeling. So I, I want to ask to you then, you know, in this digital age, do, would you say that, um, or at least now, is culture limited to old traditions? Or would you say that young people have started to create their own subcultures informed by their lived experiences? Um, I think the, the idea of culture that I subscribe to is definitely one that evolves, you know, um, and that's not to remove the existing 
traditional elements of what culture is to, to people. But I think by mere fact that human beings are constantly creating and evolving and, and come from a lineage to bring something else into the table means that there's, there's always something new to, to bring into it. And I think part of documenting that is important because you get to see what what culture has meant to certain people over time, you know. Um, and and I think the the idea of marrying uh, both these worlds allows all of us to exist and not to be a myth, and for there not to be one specific way of interpreting what culture is. Um, yeah. So I I, I I enjoy what that looks like, and I hope it's something that we're able to engage as well because I think at least from my perspective, the idea of traditional culture has made me feel excluded actually more than being included. And the idea of us being able to create subcultures allows us to own those spaces that we've created whilst also tributing the spaces that we, we receive those inspirations and those, and those original cultures from. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is definitely important to encourage spaces of having subcultures. Sure. Nadine, your work also sort of focuses on a lot of on historical identity and you sort of try to document those lives. Um, can you please maybe also just share then, like, what role does history have in your work? Yeah, look, my work is primarily about history and identity. And because, you know, as we've been saying, we have been erased and our stories have been told by other people, you know, and so that's why it's it's part of, um, for me, increasing the archive, but our own archive, you know what I mean? And in very practical terms, actually, our archives, right, in terms of um, the pre-colonial period, even in terms, not, not the pre-colonial period, but I mean like um, apartheid footage, even footage of our wildlife is all owned by the West, owned as in, mm. you know, uh, and so if we want to use it in our work, we have to pay um, mm -hmm. Europe and America big money continuously as filmmakers to have access. So it is crucial that we as filmmakers tell our own stories and, um, you know, um, are involved with history work, you know, sure. because um, I think that era is dead and gone or it's dying out that we will continue to, that the West continues to create stories of Africa and then we will uh, continue to go back to them for our material but but it, it requires a lot of work from our side and yeah. it's part of you know heritage is yes heritage is legacy but we also build heritage ourselves right and so for me that's that's what my work does yeah. I hope that's the aim that's the aim of it Sure. Before we change gears and get into gender, I want to ask Nguli, um, what do you think is missing in the design industry in terms of heritage significance? Um, I would say that um, what, well, I think that at the moment, in my, my opinion, in my observation, what we have a lot of in the design space is, um, I think it. I would say black people uh, don't have access to design education, for example, mm -hmm. and access to opportunities. Um, and what you see is a lot of us, first of all, for in the last few years have been kind of tapping into our, you know, our background, our heritage, our culture, uh, in creating the work that we're creating. But what I think is missing is evolving but also uh, finding new ways of telling our story. I think uh, there's only so much that we can like work with Ndebele patterns or there's only so much that we can. So I feel that there is an opportunity for us to be able to um, find new, I think, I think for me what is missing is innovation and or how do we recycle our culture or our heritage because right now most of us are and I think it also goes to storytelling it goes to music it goes into all those things because um you know there's so many stories that we have told about June 16 there's so many stories that we you know like so much we have done already but like how do we then evolve it and take it to the next level and innovate and uh, make sure that we are always 
know, ahead of our times. But I think that also comes a lot with what is the expectation from um, the brands or expectation from society. Because I think if South Africa is branded as um, a Kosa or in Debele or if, like what is actually our, because if you're talking about African design, or South African design, what would be the thing that you pull out, you know? Mm. What is, it's it's either Ndebele or it's um, maybe Matosa. I don't know, like, I think that's that's the conversation that we need to have next is like, who are we as, if you Google African design, what do you find and what do you see? And is that us? And do we wanna stay that way or do we wanna go forward? And what does that look like? So I think innovation and more, education and elevating it that I would say that that's a very it's a a very interesting answer and a very complicated one and I think it's something for us to think about when we leave um this conversation um the audience is welcome to ask questions as well you can leave it in the chat box and um I think I'll keep on like checking if you if there is anything that's you know pressing that you would like to ask but I'm hoping that that will be um the end of the conversation Let's change gears and get into gender because that becomes a very complicated and a very contentious conversation, especially in our public discourse where gender equality is concerned. And we know our history is filled with silencing, erasure, patriarchy, like lenses. There's just a lot that happens with just telling of, you know, women's stories and and especially in in, in Africa. And I think Panache Chikamadzi in her recent book, These Bones Will Rise Again, sort of tries to or attempts to sort of highlight the women who also played a role in the liberation stru- struggle in, in, in Zimbabwe. And I think that's something that's very brilliant and something to, to, and something to check out. I know, Yamoria, you guys um, in Kalami um, Melanin, which celebrates 27 um, African cultures and celebrates Black girl magic, it sort of, it, it acknowledges Black women. Please walk us through the journey of creating that particular book. Uh, writing Kalami Melanin was difficult because that goes back to the archiving and how many of the cultures in Africa actually don't have any information on the internet or it's things that you find on Wikipedia and that's another problem with the digital platform is how do we verify this information and how do we authenticate it and make sure that what we have is correct so Mm -hmm. we struggle to write the book uh, in terms of finding information Um, the journey (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think we had to do a lot of tweaking in terms of the information that we did get, because even when we did find information, it was not woman-based, you know? So this came to us decorating, because I mean, that's what the job of a poet is, is yeah. to decorate, to um, add life to language, right? So um, I don't know, I think it's very telling Mm. It's very telling, like the book that you mentioned of them going back and trying to highlight. Now we have to go back and highlight the women who do already exist. So now mm. we're trying to break down the old house and take the good bricks of the women who do exist and try to build a new temple for ourselves. So that's what the journey looked like, breaking down old walls, yeah. building new ones with the bricks that we kind of liked, that kind of represented us and were in the shape that we wanted them to be in. Mm. Nadine, um, Yamora also, you know, talks about the the reshaping of narratives and reimagining the the woman body in, in in African historical discourse. And I think with the behind the cut class masterclasses program that you're also currently working on, I think it, it also speaks to that in a way. Can you also please just tell us more about that particular program and and what is it doing for women in in the filmmaking industry? Thanks. Yeah. Look. Um, Behind the Cut is um, women-led film masterclasses, right? So beyond um, functioning as resources for emerging filmmakers, it was important to say, to make the statement with masterclasses that these are the experts in the field and this is what our industry looks like, you know? So our very first speaker was Shami Isaacs, um, who spoke on writing and acting. Second speaker was um, Zoe Black, who runs her own YouTube channel, so she spoke about filmmaking and YouTube. We then had Shelley Barry, who spoke about the experimental documentary, and our very last speakers were um, uh, Dominique Jassy and Seho Kanyile, who spoke about film producing and parenting in the industry. Our next speaker is Mabato Kao, who's a story consultant, 
Um, we, then after we're dealing with animation and then post-production. So those are the seven sessions we have planned, um, but also that um, it's women. Um, the majority of our speakers are women of color. Um, half of our speakers are queer women. And that is so important to say, this is what our industry looks like because I feel like industry only calls on us in Women's Month to come and speak. So it was important to make that very important, that statement with behind the cut masterclasses to say, we are here, this is what we look like. We are the masters of our, of our field. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and Guli, I know that at the Basha Uhuru Sounds um, of Freedom Music Festival, you also mentioned issues of access and mentoring, especially for Black people in the design space. What do you think are some of the causes of this particular issue? And is it still something that's recurring right now? Um, I just actually want to also just add on to what Nadine said. I think mm -hmm. for me, how I look at the gender thing is very much you know, connected to what, for example, is happening with when the Black Lives Matter movement started happening. And you had a lot of, for example, I don't know if you know a girl called Tenji, where she's an mm -hmm. artist, a South African artist, Tenji. And um, they were asked together with other Black illustrators, women, at the height of Black Lives Matter that they should come and paint the Microsoft offices and do graffiti or some illustrations outside the Microsoft office. But this advertising agency was very specific that this needs to happen within two weeks because that's when everyone is talking about Black Lives Matter. So we don't actually care what happens beyond that. We mm. just want you to, um, we wanna be part of the relevant crew. We wanna be part of the people talking about black issues or wanna be part of the people that are talking about women issues. But do we actually, at the core of it all, do we actually care mm. and are we doing it in a long-term uh, way that is actually going to take us somewhere or are we just going to give like 50 uh, schools sanitary pads and then continue to make bad tv ads about black hair you know what I mean and then we'll shut them up for now and then keep going and I think for me that's the um, the same conversations because I'm like it does, it's, we keep having these conversations and brands keep promising that they'll change, but are they actually? So I feel like the work needs to be done on a deeper level. We need to have more and more young people having access to design schools. If you go to advertising schools, how many black kids are in those schools? Mostly because they can't afford it. They don't have the access to it. So what are those schools doing about that situation? So looking at the, at the situation like on a more deeper level and not just being superficial about it. And I mm -hmm. think, yes, there's still a problem in the design industry. There's literally, you can count how many black women or black people are working within that space and how we're represented. So yeah, I think, yes, there is. And on the one hand, of course, we also need to take uh, the space and we um, we need to also work on the on, on being represented and finding ways of like uh, being seen uh, however it's so damn hard if design in Daba says you have to pay 20,000 to have a stand uh, but yet they're giving young people opportunities so I I feel like it, it, it's a lot of work still that needs to be done and we need to figure out how to change it but not just on a superficial level it needs to go deeper than that Sure. Um, Zoe, Nguli talks about issues of access. And, and I mean, I know you went to an art school and you went to a university that offers a great music, um, that has a great music faculty. Can you also maybe just talk about um, issues of, let's say the, there's like talent, but they just don't know where to direct the talent and they don't know the spaces or the spaces are just inaccessible. Can you maybe also talk about maybe in your view, have you sort of witnessed, um, you know, a bit of a disconnect between talent and institutions that actually grow and hone, you know, talent? Ah, oh, man. Uh, I think anything pertaining to institutions is always such an interesting conversation for me. And I don't mean to laugh about it. I, I suppose I feel strongly about it that I, I sometimes put it to the corner of my mind. I don't know if that reasoning makes sense. Um, I, I, I really I am fortunate. I am blessed to have been able to be given the opportunities to study both classical and jazz music. And I feel that those tools I've been able to use as a professional music musician even today, you know. 
Um, but a, a large part of where I am in, in my thinking right now is in a space of disconnect when it comes to the opportunities I've been awarded and what that actually means for who I am, where I am in the world and what I'm supposed to mean all over the world. Um, and what I mean by that is that I find with a lot of the syllabus, it was really very Western based, um, which means it's a tricky situation because I mean, let me just put, put in an, an example for you. Imagine spending six to eight hours, which is the amount of time I would spend practicing in a day. And a lot of that knowledge being Western means that it's something that I'm, I'm beginning to um, kind of put a lot of my worth to because I go to at Stedford's, I go to competitions, I win competitions with this kind of skill set, you know. Um, and I, I suppose on, on one end, it makes me exportable, so to speak, because I have the skill that anyone in the world would have because they would follow the same kind of syllabus. Um, and same thing applies to the jazz space. Uh, but I think that one of the biggest heartbreaks of my heart is 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 the fact that um, South African music knowledge systems and African music knowledge systems have not been put in the forefront. And I feel like a lot of the spaces I've been educated, you would expect um, for there to be importance of that, simply based on the fact that those are considered excellent spaces, uh, but they should represent where we are geographically. Um, and I feel like there is a lack in that. Um, just seeing um, a better representation in textbooks and history books of, of, of black classical composers, of, of black modern artists. You know, it's usually just a, a, a small little paragraph or module at most. So you end up specializing in a knowledge system that you can't really recognize yourself in. Um, and that can be a cause for a lot of conflict uh, when it comes to how you create, um, what you place to be valuable um, and, and, all, and all of that. Um, but I, I think one of my main missions is to look into what challenging that is and what it looks like practically. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to know that there are new music scholars that are peers as well, um, like Kyo um, Kolwane, who um, did um, a documentation of newer vocalists, um, like your Siama Kuzenis and myself. Um, so I'm happy that I'm seeing and I'm trying to be a part of what that looks like. But it, it, it's such, it really is such a mind F, um, just to be quite frank with it. And, and I, I, I'd like to be a part of the people that try and navigate what, what it looks like and what a better way of it is, you know, better way forward is. And, and just on that, um, because also you talk about how, you know, the, 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 the institutions also mold you to become, I guess, palatable for the, for, for, for mainstream or for the audience. I want to ask you then, um, in an industry that usually promotes concepts that are popular, that are popular and selling, did you have any fears, um, of creating Inganekwana, your, your, your sophomore album, because it, it's, it's largely Zulu, it has a lot of traditional elements to it, um, and it's quite, different to to your debut album even though you had a bit of you know a traditional and and, and zulu songs in, in your in your debut album but it is quite different in terms of in terms of texture tone and sound did you have any fears absolutely i was i was too scared i was too scared um and 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 really it, it it's 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 the upbringing of it all right um so outside of the music education aspect of it I feel like I, I didn't, I couldn't, um, I felt like I wasn't scholarly enough in being Zulu enough to relay certain messages. And that was the reason why I didn't write uh, a lot in my language, for example, um, which is something that I went into with this particular language. I, I was terrified, but I, one thing that affirmed me, going back to the idea of subculture as well, one thing that really affirmed me was the idea that a lot of people experience what I experience and have the perspective that I have in terms of feeling lost in all of it, right? And, um, and not feeling like you're valuable enough to your community, so to speak, to have certain points of views, to tell certain stories in a certain kind of way. And that was an affirming thing to me because I realized Maybe I haven't seeked out, but I haven't seen very many of those perspectives, especially in the music space, where someone says, 
men. I am a Zulu speaking woman um, who has a conflict about what that means because from an early age, I was told by a particular teacher that it was rude for me to speak my language. I went and I received great uh, formal training opportunities, but I, I felt a push and pull in terms of what that means to my identity, which becomes important in establishing an actual career out of music. You know, it's, it's the things that set you apart. But what is that if all of this knowledge is, is, is what I, I relate to myself, you know? So um, yeah, to, to answer it short and simple, I was scared, but I'm glad I did it anyway. Nadine, also, I think with some of your stories, there's, there's a lot of controversial and contentious issues that you've touched in your subject matter with your documentaries. Um, did you also face any fears in, in your creating process in wondering whether how is it going to be received? Is it going to be too controversial or are people just going to have, you know, negative, um, you know, um, I guess, opinions about your pieces? Yeah. Um, firstly, I want to just salute Zoe for, you know, being brave and just like, breaking the boundaries, man, because I, let me say, I mean, I was an Afrikaans lecturer, as our people would know, and what I try and do with my work in terms of language is to reclaim Afrikaans as a black language, because that's what it is, you know what I mean, and um, a lot of my work, my documentary, my um, even my, my first fiction is in Afrikaans, but the way our people speak Afrikaans, and I think that makes a clear statement. And it's average people, normal people. Um, well, no, you know what I mean? Um, it's, um, and it's heroes that speak Afrikaans like this. We're not gangsters. Sometimes when people speak Afrikaans in a certain way, they represent it by commercial media as um, uneducated gangsters, et cetera, et cetera. In, in my work, it's your average person that speaks Afrikaans that sounds like this, that is a liberation hero that spoke Afrikaans like this, um, that is your average girl walking down the street that speaks Afrikaans like this. So that's part of the work. Like it's no coincidence that it's, it's, for me, it's a highly political choice, the type of Afrikaans that's in my, in my work. Mm. Hmm. But that's actually interesting. Yeah. And I know that you did mention to me that you, you won't be able to stay for the question and answer. Yeah, yeah. So if you have any questions for Nadine at the moment, she can just um, leave them in the chat box and then she'll try and tap out your um, answers on there. Yamoria, let's come back to you. So I want to find out, um, because obviously you've written um, a book and, 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 and obviously lives within the, the literature realm. And globally, there seems to be a wide digital library where different nations can access their heritage, memory, and history. And I know that recently in Nigeria, um, Dominic Onyekachi created a platform for archiving story, um, story, um, stories for children. And I want to ask you then, where are we as South Africa in terms of um, archiving African literature? Um, I think we're moving in the right direction. I think something in South Africa is trying to, we're trying to hone this culture of reading, which, which isn't a culture that's really popular right now. And I feel like in, in archiving our stories and in getting our stories written down and put out there, we can definitely hone a culture of reading and reading the right kind of literature. I mean, if you look in schools, we're always reading white men, middle-aged white men type poems. The books that we're reading are international books. You know, there isn't a culture for reading African and purely South African stories. So where then as a young child, do you see yourself in words? You know, where do you find yourself in all of this when schools are just putting out books that aren't for us and by us, you know? Um, and also, um, okay, Kuli. No, I just wanted to add on, I think, Archiving is such an important thing. Um, as you know, I'm in Sweden right now. And one of the things that I have discovered is that Sweden owns a lot of South African archives. If mm -hmm. you go on the Swedish um, web, there's a specific site where you can go and you'll just see a whole lot of Miriam Mageba concerts that we've never seen before. Yeah. And Ms. Cole's work is all in Sweden. You know, Johnny Diani, the jazz player's work is in Sweden. So 
I mean, I think it also, and I, I am passionate about archiving and and documentation, but one of the things I also recognize is that it also is our own government needs to be passionate about it, needs to put in a lot of energy and time and money into it in order for it to happen. For example, in the social history archives in Amsterdam, you can find so much content by South African artists of the things they were doing in Lusaka and in Tanzania during exile, which we've never had access to. Now imagine if Zoe could access all that music and all the poets could access all that poetry that all our artists were doing. Radio Freedom, which was started by the youth during exile, all that content, all that music that we never heard from Umambu Simsonga, for example. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think maybe we're not able to trace it back and go back there, but going forward, we should then take the ownership of our archiving our own, uh, our own uh, history and documenting and making those books that we want to be read. And, you know, it can be on a smaller scale, whether it's like little photocopied zines or, you know, but we need to take ownership. We need to then say, okay, we may have missed that opportunity. We don't have access to that stuff, but what are we doing going forward? So that's, yeah. Sure. Um, Nadine, just before you go, um, do you have any last remarks um, before you just, um, you, before you leave the, the, the session? Um, I just want to say that, been incredible meeting um, these women. Um, yeah, man, what you've been raising, I think, will really stick um, for a long time, especially to me. Like, you've just given me things to think about. And thank you so much, Sugar. And I wish you um, all the best in your field. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you, Nadine. No, I'm saying Zoe. Thank you, Nadine, for your time. Thank you. Um, if you have any questions for Nadine, I'll try and get the answers from her. So I'll just relay the messages to you and then I'll try and get back to you. Um, Thanks, okay. Thank you, Nadine. Um, Zoe, Ngoli mentioned something that I was going to ask you about, you know, um, accessing music from back in the day and how does that influence, you know, sound today? Because I know you've also tried to make sure that you sort of borrow influences from our older generation um, musicians, your Winston, Nongungu, and, and like what she said, they were, I remember on Twitter, I saw pictures that I'd never seen of um, Uma Miriam with Nina Simone, and I was like, I didn't even know that they knew each other. So mm. just, can you walk us through maybe, you know, how does that look like in the music world, just the disconnect of um, music from the old generation to musicians who are creating music right now? I think what uh, uh, Unkoli said, about ownership is at the core of the problem that we're having, especially in the music industry. Because what we're seeing is that it's, it's never been deniable that we have cultural icons um, that we come from in the art space and in the music space. And like you say, I, I love to borrow and I like to pass the, the, the influence and the lineage that they've impacted my life with forward by contributing to that in the sense of making a reimagining of their work. Um, and that is Kra um, Winston Mankungu and Umama Africa, Umamirimakeva, to name a few. Um, but the problem that we, 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 we've had and we are still having is more than the archiving is, is the idea of ownership, you know. Um, the truth and the reality of it is that financing anything in the art field is, is, a, is a big mess, right? Um, and even if you have a good head on your shoulders, you might find other ways around the conversation of ownership where you might say, okay, I'll give you this percentage of my music and um, then this means I get to be PR'd in the, these spaces. You know, there's different ways to negotiate these de deals. Um, but unfortunately, with a lot of um, incredible artists that I respect that we come from, a lot of those dealings were not handled well, where a lot of discographies were given completely to um, corporate entities that um, are not even established within the continent, you know, um, as we heard Unko say as well. Um, and I think that's what has created the disconnect, because if you don't own something, then how do you move it forward? then what interest do you have in educating, um, let's say, in Ghana that come after the fact? Abozoi, 
for them to see what in, what invested interest do you have in a Zoe Mudecha uh, who would like the idea of seeing uh, a lot more of Mam Miriam's performances, a lot more of Mambusi's performances, but she's she she doesn't have access to that. You know, there doesn't seem to be an interest in 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 what that means. Um, and and it makes me emotional um, quite a bit because when I think of the idea of archiving and owning what you archive, I think of a moment I had actually when I was searching through Twitter like we all do. Um, and you know, I was just having my own little fun, my own little corner there. You know, there's interesting conversations to entertain and look over and laugh about. And I ran into a small little clip that had Oh, the late and amazing Lib Matosa singing a song. Um, was the name of the song. And it was a dedication to Mambusim um, And I burst it into tears because I had not seen enough. I have not seen enough of Lib Matosa to begin with. When you search her on YouTube, you will find but very few interviews of her. Um, and, and, and it does create an, an, an erasing of, of her legacy and what she had to offer, you know? Um, and the fact that she threw it back to another artist, Mambu Simplongo, who's such a major inspiration in my current work right now, to have been able to see that a lot earlier and to maybe have had the opportunity to grow up, being around this would have elevated so much of what I create and so much of what my peers create. Because we do look at the past to, to, to gain that wisdom and that knowledge and that way of, of, of passing in information so that we have better, um, I'm losing my words, sorry, so that we have better ways of, of claiming ourselves to put forward that maybe someday someone else might cite my work and look at whom I cited and who that person cited, you know? So because of the ownership and the fact that it, it's, it belonged to, Western entities that really don't have vested interest in us. Uh, it really has created a disconnect and you have to look hard to find um, something to lean onto and inspiration to, 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 to base yourself on. Um, and even the idea of Yakalinkomo, um, uh, which is a recording that I made from Ubabunstein Mangongo. The reason why I even found out that song existed was not because I went to study classical music at one of the most recognized high schools, which I love and respect and I'm still grateful for, but it was because Nomfundo uh, Kalova, an amazing singer and pianist, uh, did an opening for Diane Reeves and I happened to go and watch that concert with my mother. That's how I had access to that song. And after I heard it one time, it drove me absolutely mad and I by all means tried to find what that song was because I didn't even know what it was and I then realized that there was a Pra Winston Mankunku who was a, a cultural and musical icon you know so ownership 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 I like that I like that yeah sure uh, then Zoe uh, I think the music industry is one of the biggest industries so I'll step aside from poetry and ask then yes you're speaking of ownership but young artists are sitting in a position right now where everyone is trying to be commercial, where they are quite desperate, and they end up signing their rights away. We are still facing the exact same problem. Maybe it's not the Western community, maybe it's not other countries which are the problem right now, but now we are facing record labels where the same exact thing is happening to artists for probably the exact same reasons of, you know, trying to eat off of your art, of desperation, of being in a position where, you know, you don't know how you will go further without these people. So then what do we say to upcoming artists now? How many things have they lost when they choose to get out of these record deals? Mm. You know, how much ownership have they lost? They're also sitting in the exact same position. We're also going to be struggling to find this work. And even when we do find it, do these artists benefit from this work? No. So what is it that we then tell the next generation of artists to then do differently because they too are just trying to eat? Exactly. And this, and you know, you know what you're saying is so incredibly like we can't remove ourselves from it. it. It's such a relevant point to make, you know? Um, and I think in the way that I've been trying to reason it, because it, I mean, whether or not um, the people who are listening to this conversation are aware, there's been a lot of conversation um, through your Notas and your Kanye Wests about the idea of owning your music. Um, and we see from the people that we've looked up to that are 
goats, so to speak, in the industry um, who find themselves in the position of not owning their work. I think my 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 reply to that is that it's it's not simple, you know, because firstly, if it was simple, everyone would do it. Um, Self-financing is something that I am in the position to do right now. And I'm grateful for what that means, but I know that it's not something that is not accessible to every artist, you know? Um, and what I would encourage is not to sign deals blindly because we've seen it happen time and time again. Oh, Part hungry. Is oh, that. on a hungry stomach. Oh, hungry. You know what? And to be very frank, I've been both those things. I've been desperate. I've been hungry. Yes, I've had a lot more opportunities, I'll acknowledge, than most people. But I've still found myself in those positions. And I think if you, if you, put, if you put yourself in the position, young people like myself, my peers I'm speaking to, you, if you say to yourself, okay, this is what I want to accomplish, navigate or see what that looks like and get as much information of what all these things mean seek seek to if you're in a position where you want to give some of your rights away which is a common thing to do seek to find yourself in spaces where you understand what you are ne negotiating where you also understand what your value is because if you don't know your value what are you negotiating i was in a position of not needing to be told by the public that i was a b c or d i knew the value of what i had because i knew i worked hard for it i knew i spent the hours and i knew that validated me regardless of whether one person was listening to my record or 5 million people were listening to my record. So I was in positions where I was offered deals by a lot of your favorite corporate companies. And I realized that I'm hungry, yes. I, I don't know where I'm gonna get my next check, but I'm not going to navigate it this way because you want me to sell firstly a particular narrative. And that is important for me not to uh, compromise. Um, and a lot of these entities are very uncompromising about what it is that you actually sell. So you have to ask yourself the question of, are you willing to sell your soul? They, they, they usually say, but are you willing to sell your narrative? You know, um, and maybe that will give you more questions to ask about what you are willing to stand for. But I think that alone should help to navigate spaces that you should be in. And just to be more educated about what you're signing off if your choice is to sign off. There are ways to negotiate not owning 100% of your music, but owning a fair enough percentage that your legacy means something after you are long gone. Because you, what you're creating is not just for the here, it's not just for the now. You have to think about, I mean, I, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but should you choose to have a legacy um, that you are giving to your children if you decide to have children or whoever it is in your family that you'll be handing over those rights to that will become important to them and to the people after that and to the people after that you know because mu music art is something that you relate with it's it's a timeless thing after i'm here i need to know that my children are going to be able to navigate my my intellectual property in a way that is going to be respectable to what i, I was able to contribute in my living you know, so again, I acknowledge humbly that I know it's not an easy thing, but I can tell you I've been hungry, I've been conflicted by these things, and it is a continuous conversation. And who knows, maybe I'll be one of those people who believe in something so entirely, but I might find myself having a misstep where I have to call myself to order, where I'm not making decisions I'm proud of. But I think we need to see the bigger picture of what it means far beyond the hunger that is happening right now, you know? I wanna talk about language before we get into the questions from, before we ask questions from the audience. Um, Yamoria, obviously, well, I, I'm gonna assume that it's an obvious fact that um, language is quite contested. It's quite a contested issue in South Africa, um, especially when we talk about scholarship and the literary space. Um, I wanna ask how important is it then to have diverse languages when telling African stories? Oh goodness, you don't know how many interviews we've set in where they ask us, you're black, why do you write poems in English? Yo, like that exhausts me so much because all black people have a clear understanding that from long ago, English has been the language of progress. If you are mm. moving, you are able to understand the language of the oppressor. So I'm a young girl, grew up in the suburbs, you know, I'm slap bang in the middle of being black and not understanding my culture, 
right? And you're going to ask me these questions that, in essence, question everything that I am, right? My father is Tonga, I do not speak the language. My mother is Kosa, I do not speak the language. I speak Tswana, and I speak Tobuk Tswana at that, you know, not even the Thara language. Um, and you want to ask me why I write my poems in English. As Black people, like, I, I, I just... I mean, with Kalmi Melon in writing that as well, we had to go and find Khoisan. We had to go and find languages from cultures up in Africa, you know, the Wadobi people, you know, mm -hmm. so many people who had to go and find pieces of language from them. Who do they praise? Who is their God? How do they speak to their God? How do they relate to their God? That, that information is not even accessible, mm -hmm. you know, before you ask me what language I write my poems in and why that is. Uh, yeah. Progress. And language is important because if you think about it, just the, the narrative of, of us sitting around fires and telling stories, it's in our languages. We own those stories. We own that language. So it definitely is important. And in this time, I think it's important that we put our languages out there and translations of our work, even when in English, can be translated to other languages so that future generations can access these things, you know? And and, and also, Zoe, I want to ask, because I know that Ingwanekwana opens with Kwasukasugela and it closes with Kwasukasugela. I want to ask the significance of that, because I know language also played quite a big role in, I'm, I'm assuming, played a big role in creating Ingwanekwana. Mm -hmm. So Inganekwane is, is loosely translated Zulu fairy tale. Um, and it's basically really stories that um, are folklore stories. Um, and that uh, stories that I grew up listening to that tell certain lessons, you know, and there's always the rabbit, who was too clever and did this and that and the next, you know. Um, and with this project, I found that I had to look to the beginning. And as I was trying to find that what that beginning was, the idea of it became something that was apparent to my childhood, you know? Um, so is what the storyteller usually says before they start reciting and is the end. It's what's usually said when, when that is, is, is being ended. So I really wanted to be true to the idea of recreating my idea and understanding of what my folklore is, my audio sonic folklore is. Sure. Nice, nice. And and Guli, just with you, I also know that obviously Black culture and traditions are the focus of your crafts. Um, would you say that this was also an intentional decision on your side? Sorry, I, I lost you. Uh, <laughs> there was a connection breakdown. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Yeah. So I was just asking that because I've I've seen a lot of your work and I, I see a lot of black culture and traditions uh, are also sort of there's there's a bit of focus on your craft on those particular two elements. Was this an intentional decision on your side? Yeah, I think um at the time it was um again the this thing of like when you're watching these nice TV shows that you have in South African TV mainstream, um, you see, for example, houses in Camps Bay and Santon and whatever, but you never see them profiling a house in the township, right? Um, and I grew up in the township when I knew that there was women who saved, who worked, very hard to make their houses beautiful. However, that was never in like, that's not an aspiration. It wasn't like, oh, I would like to have a house like Memang Mang's house, you know? you, It's like, oh, I wanna have a house like Mrs. whatever, De Corte in Santa. It's like, so this idea that, it's like, do we, do you, do you feel like, you know, what is, uh, a South African interior or like an interior that actually represents us. Have you seen it on top billing? It's hmm. a good question. Our houses are not <laughs> like that, you know? That's not how our houses look. So I am, I'm very, I, and I mean, it's quite interesting because then I made the rugs and the production of the actual rug is really expensive, so which means which means the rug itself is quite expensive. I still hope that I'll be able to find 
because I also don't want to exploit the people who make it. I want to pay them enough and I want to make sure that it's good quality. However, it would be amazing to get to a point where this, because I think I, I think a lot about even just what is a black aesthetic? What is our, um, what what is us, you know, in a way that is not, um, I mean, it's it, in a way that that you feel like, yeah, it's beautiful, you know, and I'm proud of it. And it, it is, you know, talking about where I come from, but it's also progressive. And it's, you know, it's good design. It's all those things. So I'm really curious about that. And that's why I really have struggled doing a photo shoot in a house, because as soon as I have a photo shoot in a fancy house in Santon, that excludes so many other people who in the township have beautiful homes or what they see as a beautiful home you know and so it's for me it's still a, it's something that I'm still figuring out um I mean it's been interesting since moving to Sweden Sweden is seen as like the capital of design it's uh this whole minimalism blah 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 and being here has made me question my aesthetic a lot because if I'm coming from South Africa and I'm used to having 10 colors in a design and here everything's just gray and black. And that's what the world says is the best aesthetic. It's the Swedish design. So what is my place? Where is my place? And how do I want to navigate those spaces, you know? So it's, I think it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. I'm still figuring it out. I haven't yet. I love beautiful things just like many other people uh, in the township or you know in the rural areas and for me it's also just really about taking pride and it does not even have to be expensive or you know it's just yeah I don't know like it's for me it's, it, it, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about when I'm creating it's not just about the you know that it's in Develo or that it's because it's just all those things put together and how I want to navigate those spaces. So yeah, I'm, nice, I'm still figuring nice. it out. Um, so I'm going to open up the floor to the audience. Um, if you have any questions for our panel, you are welcome to throw it down the chat and I'll try by all means to answer or to ask um, all this, to ask the, the panels the questions that you pose. Can I just uh, say something about, uh, just to, to build on to what Zoe had said, I think the intellectual property thing is such a crucial, crucial conversation. Um, and I think also I wanted to add that no brand and no one will come to you unless if they actually believe in what you're doing, that they think that it is good enough. So you have as much leverage to negotiate what you want just as much as, cause they will not come to you unless if they did, you know, they really want something out of you or they really would like you to be part of their world. And that's why they're coming to you. So you need to value that. You need to stand your ground. And I get it. Like I've also been in positions where I don't have money. You know, I don't even have data to send an email, but it's so important. And I remember not so long ago, I was approached by a brand, a famous brand, which we all buy from, which we all know. They came to me and they wanted me to design some things from me. And then I asked them, how much are you going to pay me? They were going to pay me 7,000 Rand for the design, which was going to be replicated and sold in 200 of their stores. Mm. And I only get 7,000 Rand when they're going to make 700,000 Rand. And you know what's sad? A few months later, I see that they have collaborated with five other black designers, which means that those people got 7,000 rand to do what they're doing. And you know what? They will have your face on there. If they have it on their campaign that we had Zoe Mudir, do you know how much marketing PR publicity is that? How much they are, they're just using your face to be in that campaign. And there's so many layers to it that they will not come to you if they didn't really value what you're doing. So you need to value it yourself and you need to also stand your ground. And I think this is an important thing. I don't know if there's ways of involving um, 
lawyers in the way that you know you have lawyers who can do this kind of work pro bono for creatives and designers and stuff because that's also very important if we can get to a point where if someone comes to you and says hey can you write a poem for a tv ad then you consult with the lawyer and you're like hey what do you think of this contract is it you know is it proper can i take it can you negotiate on my behalf so i think it's just such a an important conversation and, and it keeps happening over and over again so i hope we find a way out of it Sure. We did. We did in one of our Instagram lives have um, Hali from um, the Creative Bar, who basically helps creatives, you know, um, negotiate during the contract phase. So I think that's also something that's sort of coming up and that's being established currently in the creative space in South Africa. There seems to be no questions, so I'm just going to ask my last question to all of you guys, and then you can just give me your last um, remarks on this on this question. So, um, how do you think people can use digital knowledge? to preserve heritage. <laughs> Anyone, should I just mention, okay, Zoe, you can go since you're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> that silence was hilarious. I was like, hmm, who's, who's gonna, which of these lovely humans is going to answer this? Um, um, I mean, the virtual space is the space that we're in right now. Um, and I think it's become even more abundantly clear with the global pandemic that's happened. And we'll probably have to exist or coexist um, the feel and touch space with the virtual space, you know. Um, in terms of how that works with regards to heritage, um, I think it's it's just us documenting what, what it means to us. Um, and by mere fact that we're documenting it in these social spaces, means that it can't be erased, even if we really want it to be sometimes. Um, all these conversations and opinions and works, uh, songs, poems, designs, all, all these spaces that we work in as, 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 as the different storytellers that we are, by mere fact of continuing to engage those spaces, we would be documenting what they are, you know? Um, and I suppose it would be the responsibility on our end to be honest to what that is to us at the time, which must also be allowed to be a changing thing because we do evolve as human beings as well, you know. Um, but I, I hope that answers the, the question. It's an interesting one. I think I actually have to think about it as well um, and not run my mouth. But yeah, I would say by mere fact that we exist in these spaces and what we're now global citizens and we are you know, in the virtual space, we've, we're already documenting it. Unlike maybe the uh, original oral tradition spaces where you'd have to, you know, kind of cater to that space a lot more sensitively or, you know, there would be a certain way of engaging that. Now we have that access, you know. Um, Apure, to answer your question, we're actually doing that right now. <laughs> this is being recorded. I'm assuming it would be put on a platform yeah. like YouTube where people can access it. So here we are right now doing that, you know? Yeah, I actually had a friend once who was speaking, uh, he's a journalist and he was writing articles on your older um, hip hop generation, you know, your double HPs, your pro kid. And he was speaking about how difficult it is to find the simplest information, you know, about an interview or something. You literally have to go to the library, access the archives, the newspapers, read older articles. And with us, he said, if he had to write something, you know, about a Yamori, about a Zoe, about a Kubi, literally pick up your phone, go on Facebook, go on Twitter, go on Instagram and YouTube and everything. We are podcasters as well. Literally, if you want to know what it is that we're doing, you literally just jump onto Spotify and you have so much information about us. So literally in the slap of a finger, you've got everything about an entire person, about their brand, about everything that they've built. And I think something that's amazing about this as well is that I don't need to have connections to cross the border. I don't need to know mama who's going to take me somewhere. I can literally have someone sitting in this room the zoom right now um you know from switzerland from you know australia from anywhere we don't need you know permission to be accessed boundaries are part yeah we don't yeah. need permission to be accessed we're simply just out there continuously and forever yeah and you no yeah i also totally agree with everyone i think everybody i mean there's a lot of people who are doing it in their own you know, smaller ways and other people doing it in bigger ways. And um, I think 
what could be also really interesting is I think the ownership thing is I think I'm really much more interested in things that are much not on the surface like I think we need to I don't know being intentional about it and um being um so that it it's 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 not just fleeting that it's not uh, something that's just trending for a few weeks, but um, you know, it can it's things that um, people can go back and find, you know, and 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 when they need them. So, but I think it's definitely happening, and and it's 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 really cool to see how different people are telling their own stories and um, in their own way. So, I think it's definitely happening. I have a love and hate relationship with the digital space. So just, I have to think a bit more about it. <laughs> for sure, for sure, for sure. Thank you so much, um, ladies, for joining me in this very much so um, interesting, quite informative, a lot to think about conversation. And I think it sort of sparked a lot of, um, you know, ideas around, you know, archiving and preserving our heritage, whether it's through music, whether it's through design, literature and film. There's so much that we can do from our little, you know, spaces in, in, in terms of just broadcasting who we are and doing it in such an authentic way. So I just want to say thank you for coming in and just sharing your journeys and sharing your views on, on heritage and the digital space. From my side, I'm saying thank you and Digify Africa. Thank you so much. And thank you to our audience for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you so, much. so much. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>